Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. So welcome to another episode of the Traveling Image Makers Podcast. And uh, today it will be just me because uh, my usual co-host Ralph Velasco is on his way to Morocco and uh, he will be there for, for some time. So maybe I'll miss a, a few episodes unless we manage to uh, find some, some good bandwidth, but, but we'll see. But anyway, I'm really excited today to have on the show uh, Matt Brandon. I've been following Matt for uh, for a long time. Um, especially when he was doing his uh, depth of field podcast. So, hi Matt, how are you? Hi Hugo, uh, I'm well. Thank oh. you for having me. Uh, yeah, it's great to have you here. I was mentioning your podcast. I think you you discontinued it, or you're not keeping it uh, up to date. It was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of put on uh, mothballs for now. Mm-hmm. Um, reality is. Uh, it's, it, as you know, doing a podcast is a lot of work and, uh, getting, getting the guests together and getting everything set up and ready to go. And then, of course, recording and then editing everything. Uh, it just, uh, consumed my time and energy. I was, it was a one man show and, uh, I just, I just, you know, and, and frankly, I, it wasn't really providing much monetary uh, gain from doing it and uh, I had to I had to decide what was important and yeah know. good that that's a, that's a pity but you still have a, a vlog a video blog that you keep yeah I I have I, I've uh, that's actually been on hold for a couple of weeks only because I've been uh, I have a, a assignment that I'm working on uh, which is taking me eight hours a day type of stuff so um, but uh, yeah yeah then that's been really fun it's been fun to you know video is something that I've never really pursued much and um, and so doing the vlog and then um, has has opened up a lot of doors for me and that's actually the job that I'm doing now uh, for a there's a factory uh, that's that um, makes all kinds of uh, clean room labels and things, and um, they're they've hired me to to shoot a series of eight videos for them for their website, and um, and so it's been it's been fun. I, I feel like I'm starting all over again, you know, and it's all that excitement of of learning the a new craft and taking what you know out of photography and then applying it to video. And, and so it's, it's, it's been fun. It's, it's a new adventure. Yeah, no, it's fun. I always uh, keep saying that I should do more video myself, but I, I never find the time. <laughs> anyway, yeah. uh, just, uh, I'll give you, um, I'll give a little bit of uh, introduction uh, uh, to our listeners about um, who is Matt Brandon. And then if you want to, to add something or, uh, just please do. So Matt Brandon is okay. a Malaysia-based uh, assignment photographer uh, who has experienced photographing for nonprofits, assignment, and editorial work. And uh, you mm. were recently the still photographer for the Indian Summers uh, Channel 4 and PBS series filmed in Penang, Malaysia. 
and your clients include Asian Geographic, KLM Airlines, Channel 4 and PBS, Partner Aid International, NeighborWorks, uh, uh, Honda, Bombardier, and, and others, and they've used um, your images. And you've traveled to Egypt, Tibet, India, Indonesia, Thailand, Maldives, uh, the Philippines, Malaysia, to, to name a few. So it's clear that you, you love traveling. Uh, yeah. You're also a member of the International Guild of Visual Pacemakers uh, mm. and on the advisory board of uh, Focus for Humanity and the design board for Think Tank Photo, that is a camera bag uh, manufacturer. And to top it all off, uh, you're a, a Fujifilm X photographer. So I guess that uh, says something about what you like shooting with. So anything <laughs> you would uh, you would like to add to this uh, impressive uh, resume? No, who is that guy? I, yeah, <laughs> no, I, no, that's that pretty much is it. So, so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great. Workshop leader. Workshop leader. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll talk about your workshop uh, a bit later. Um, okay. And you're currently in uh, in Malaysia. Where is the Penang? Mm-hmm. In uh, yep, yeah, in little uh, little island off the coast of Malaysia called Penang. Mm-hmm. I would love to to visit there. Uh, well, what what were the reasons for um, you're from originally from the U.S. I believe. Why did you move mm-hmm. to Malaysia? What brought you there? Well, I was living in India actually uh, when I moved to Malaysia. I, I'd lived in India for 13 years. Um, I originally left the United States. Uh, uh, my new wife at the time and I um, had a desire to to travel and to see the world, and um, uh, we thought we would begin with uh, going to India. I was working with a travel agency at the time, and um, I had wanted to I proposed actually to them that I would create a um, a, uh, a, a travel itinerary if you will um, that would um, that they could sell uh, that would that would be all around North India and uh, and so I did that and uh, and we started selling it and then we um, then they their clients were mainly Chinese, and so um, I, I opened it up to others and started uh, marketing the the tour, which was called the Mogul Tour of India. It was uh, focused on, you know, when people go to India, they they really focus usually on the Hindu aspect of India, which is great, but. India has a hugely rich uh, Muslim background that goes back seven, eight hundred years, and so you know you've got all these uh, wonderful stories and rich culture and and incredible buildings that go back to uh, like uh, I think I think one of the first mosques were built like in eleven eleven, and and so and so the the whole aspect of of that of, of that part of India really has been undersold in my opinion and in tourism for India. You know, when you think of the Taj Mahal, you somehow most people just think of of India in general or or and and then kind of tie that into Hinduism and everything. But that's actually a Muslim shrine and a a, a tomb uh, from one of the Mughal uh, leaders of India. Um, Shah Jahan for his wife Mumtaz and and it's all these amazing stories of of India so we so we packaged all that up and sold this mogul tour of India and 
one thing led to another and, and I got back into photography. I was already shooting photography um, before I ever went to India, uh, more of a hobby than anything else. And then when I was in India, I started, uh, I found a, a, a guy who sold, who was like a, a photo agent in India with a group called India Pictures, actually, was what it was called. And they um, became my agent and they started selling my photos and that's how I got work with Bombardier and Honda and some of these. And, um, and so one thing led to another and I eventually took that, that mogul tour that we were selling and turned it into a photographic workshop. And that's how I started doing photo workshops. So all that to say, wait, so all that to say was India after a while wears you out. It's a, and it's a intense country. And, so after 13 years of living in India, it was time for a change, and my daughter was entering into um, into significant age of, of schooling. We needed to have a decent school, and I couldn't either afford or find either one one in India. So um, we looked at different uh, places throughout Asia. My wife is Asian. She's Filipina. And so we looked at the Philippines. We looked at uh, several other cities, Bangkok, um, Singapore, but when we came down to it, uh, we felt like we could afford um, living in Malaysia, and and, uh, and so it was between KL, which was uh, Kuala Lumpur, and uh, and Penang, and who doesn't want to live on the beach? And so we're we're 80 feet from the beach, so it's it's a nice place to live. Great. So just uh, as an aside, I find it uh, almost hard to believe that people would think that a monument like the the Taj Mahal would be example of uh, Hindu architecture or Hindu religious architecture I mean to, to me so distinctly distinctly Muslim right so, well I think yeah but I, I think it's amazing what how much people don't yeah. know and they make assumptions you know that, that's what I wanted to, to point out that it's uh, to some people probably India is just one big Hindu place and it's all well, it's actually right. a, a continent in itself with so many different, uh, at least two or three major religions and uh, so many different cultures and even languages and, mm-hmm. and peoples. It's a, it's a huge country. So, yeah. Uh, thanks for uh, reminding us uh, of that. Um, I was... Um, I was looking at your uh, your website, your blog in the, in the past few days, and uh, looking mm-hmm. for some some topics to to talk about. So, if you don't mind, I'd love to uh, to to go over some of them. We will put links in in the show notes so, so people can refer to them and um, and discuss some of the points that you that you raise. Uh, you have a lot of uh, material there that is uh, um, educational in nature, like you, you show. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Things about composition and uh, uh, choice of subject and so on. I find it very interesting. So I was reading one of uh, one of your articles uh, that is called uh, "The Human Form Divine." And I'm going to quote from it, and you say, "In composition, the human form trumps all else for visual weight." Meaning that if you have a human form in your photo, the viewer size will be drawn to it first over anything else in that frame. Mm-hmm. So what? Practical suggestions can you give with respect to including the human form in compositions in in an effective way? I mean, it's just not okay. You can always I, I see countless photos of people shot from from their back, 
Uh, you only see the, the back of their neck <laughs> in mm-hmm. those photos. That, that These are rarely interesting. So how do you create a compelling photo that includes the human form? Well, it, interesting enough, even the human form with the like of the back of someone um, will draw the viewer's eyes. Uh, and so it's it, the the whole point is that the human form itself doesn't necessarily make the photo an interesting subject. It's just that the human form compels the viewer to look at the human form first within the frame. And so, and so you need to be aware of that. And so when you create your photo, you need to create that with the understanding that if you, if you put a person in the photo, your the viewer's eyes are going to go to that person uh, first and oftentimes above anything else. And so and so that's the kind of thing that I was trying to bring out in this in this thing It's not that necessarily a human form makes the picture better, but a human form, um, it, it trumps everything else, like I said, in the photo as far as visual weight. And so if if that's not if, if you have let's say that you're taking a picture of a, of a tree and it's an amazing tree and you want to you want to, to do an artsy picture of this tree. But then you think, oh, well, I'll, I'll put a person in it to give it context and size. OK, well, that's fine. And that's a great thing to do. But know that when you put a human form in that picture, whether it's facing you sideways, their back to you, whatever, people's eyes are going to go to that human before it goes to the tree and so if your tree if you want that tree to be dominant um, you may need to rethink using a human form as opposed to something else but maybe maybe that work I mean I, I I'm just throwing that out as a, an example you know it might be perfect because that human form will add something to that photo but um, but as far as as um, the, the, you know, the point of the article was just be advised that, um, that when you are, you know, for me, one of the biggest things in photography, uh, outside of the technical aspects of getting exposure, right. And the focus, right. And all these kind of things is composition above everything else. Um, uh, composition can, uh, to me, make or break a, a well-executed photo in other other aspects. And so things like the human form, uh, light over dark, um, leading lines, uh, rule of thirds, all these kind of things. A lot of times when when people are, are studying these things, they, um, they look at them and they think, okay, I got that, now I can dismiss it. The problem is these, these things... We call them oftentimes, like we say, the rule of thirds. Um, and then you hear people say, well, rules are made to be broken. I, I find this ironic because it, this it, it's not a rule in the sense of something you have to do. That's not what it means when they're saying it's a rule of thirds or it's a, uh, a rule. It, that's not what we're meaning when we say that. Even though people use it in that way, they misunderstand how that name came about the idea there it's not a rule in of what you have to do it's a rule like a law in the sense of the law of gravity you don't have a choice with the law of gravity you hold a ball up you drop it and i mean you let go of it and it drops 
That's the law of gravity. It's just going to happen. The rule of thirds, leading lines, uh, human form, these things happen whether you want them to happen or not. And so it's best for a photographer to understand that lines pull the viewer's eyes through it. So use the lines so that you're so that you you use them for what you want for for that human form uh, to to be even reinforced with lines going to it or um, uh, the idea of rule of thirds um, in this idea of visual weight and and dominance and all this kind of stuff these things are things that we need to understand because you know you may break them in the sense of you may put your subject smack in the middle of the photo um, but when you do that, you create a visual dissidence, which is maybe exactly what you want. But but you are breaking the law of what's comfortable to someone's eyes. And so these um, I, I just think composition is is like uber important for uh, for every photographer, especially uh, a young photographer. So maybe we can say that uh, things like the rule of thirds are meant to be descriptive rather than prescriptive. I think that's the, the correct term, maybe. <laughs> well, I, I yeah. Um, I mean, I, I actually use that a lot, uh, the term prescriptive and descriptive um, when I teach photography. Um because what happens is by the time you're done teaching, people have said, I can't remember all this. There's no way I can remember all this. And I say, well, that's the idea here is when you look at your photos, then you need to look at them uh, in the sense of, of descriptive. And you, and you look at the photo and you say, all right, what is working in this photo? How, what is, is this photo using the rule of thirds is it using leading lines is it using light over dark is it using um you know large over small repetitive uh all these different things and then and then you realize okay that's why this photo is better than the one next to it because i didn't use those things and that and and so there's where you use descriptive um but i think it can be prescriptive uh it's just a matter of do you all right, so let's go back to that because one of the things that that I tell young photographers or new photographers, not necessarily young ones, but new photographers, is um, ignore it when people say don't bother with the rule of thirds. Things like that. I tell these young uh, new photographers use the rule of thirds, use it constantly, stay it, stay to it, change your your uh, your grid focus grid on your camera so that you have the rule of thirds on there and really really use it now what's going to happen is after six months a year or however long of, of taking photos using that rule of third it will become second nature to you and then at that point is when you can purposely choose not to use it or as some people like to say break that rule um, but you will see that um, when it becomes second nature to you, when it just starts happening, your level of photography and your composition and everything else will just be just markedly different and better than what it would have been before. And so it starts off in a sense prescriptive and then it just becomes something you do and you feel eventually. It's almost a Zen thing to where, you know, you 
you know, the idea of Zen and the art of, or Zen and the archery, or the art of archery, whatever it's called, um, the original book on on uh, this kind of stuff is the guy talks about being one with the arrow. The idea is you you don't become one until you've practiced over and over and over and over until it becomes something that just happens, and that's the same way with composition, and um, and you know I think I think it has to become second nature but but you train yourself to see things and you train yourself to to have an eye for composition i don't think it's just uh something that just happens no no absolutely i completely agree uh, about that uh, coming back to the the, the topic of the the human form uh, mm-hmm. maybe we can summarize and, and say that being so uh, attractive to our eyes we are drawn to the human form it's uh it's fundamental importance that if you include that in your composition it should be in a very intentional way not just uh mm. yeah we we, we do yeah. travel we we do travel photography and you mentioned places like the taj mahal and it's probably very near to impossible not to include people when you photograph uh, a landmark like the taj mahal so yeah that's uh one thing having some something that is some human some people that are in there, but somehow uh, are compositionally pleasantly arranged, and it's probably very, very difficult. Right. Rather than a random well, uh, passerby with a backpack um, uh, and a f- iPhone in hand trying to take a snapshot. Right. Right. And, and that's right. And so, so if you know you're going to have people in your photo, then maybe the idea then is to is to wait and get that person that is either the quintessential cultural sort of icon icon. So, uh, like a lot of times when I go to the Taj and I take group there, we'll sit and we'll find a nice spot to take a picture of the Taj and then we'll wait for, uh, a specific type of person or some action to come through the frame. Um, and, and it could, you could be waiting there for half an hour or an hour, but eventually that, 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 that guy from Rajasthan with the, with the eight meter turban on his head or the lady with the beautiful sari is going to waltz through the picture and bam, there's your photo. You've been waiting for it and there it is. Um, and so, you know, yeah, use it intentionally. And, um, but I think the biggest thing is you've got to slow down and you've, you've got to, you know, make that photo happen. You've got to create it. You can't just, you know, go in, snap it, and think, "Oh, I got it." Oh, it's interesting that you say you got to create it. Uh, now, maybe here I'm kicking the hornet's nest with this, but <laughs> let's see how it goes. Uh, I was just just yesterday reading uh, about uh, Steve McCurry, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar. I'm, I'm very familiar with that photo. It's a photo of uh, that's on the cover of his uh, book, uh, "The Unguarded Moment." And there's this boy running through uh, an alley, uh, and what's right. that? Was that in town in India, Jodhpur, That's which is all Jodhpur, yeah. Uh, and the boy is running through this alley, and is uh, mid in the middle of a jump coat, and there are hands right. painted on the wall. And yesterday, somebody revealed supposedly that that was staged, and so that that photo was like the boy ran through that alley like twenty times before Steve McCurry was satisfied with the composition, mm-hmm. the exact moment, uh, and so on, which was, 
ironically, maybe not that unguarded as the title suggests, but but still, I mean, he was creating the shot. Uh, right. Okay, there is no um, pretense that it's a journalistic shot, so maybe that's okay. I don't know. I I, I don't want to. to well, well, I mean, I, if if you, if uh, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe it's a bit of a horn's nest, but that but. I think the thing that 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 is everybody so pissed off is because it's on a book that's called the unguarded moment, yeah. and I think that eludes that it was a impromptu moment. Um, but I, I mean, I get that kind of uh, stuff thrown on me all the time about, oh, well, you set that shot up. It's like, okay, so what? But I don't think it's fair to to. It, um, infer that a shot is set up. I mean, isn't set up when it is set up. I I I set up shops shots all the time, but I but I don't tell people that oh this was spur of the moment or this just happened. This was serendipitous, you know. Um, and I think that's I think that's where Steve McCurry gets a lot of the grief is because he's. He's had a photojournalistic background, and he comes from a photojournalistic, um, you know, uh, environment, if you will. And I think we're finding out more and more that many of his shots were set up. Um, I don't know how that f- sets with National Geographic. Um, I think it's disappointing for me, but I haven't. I, to me, it doesn't make the shot any less spectacular. No. Um, but. But I, I do understand people's emotions because I feel like, you know, have we been lied to? Well, the fact is, did he ever say they weren't set up? Um, but I think if they're, if they're a part of National Geographic or, or you know, magazines like that, then I think there's this assumption that they are, and I think that's that's where people are, you know, getting upset about. Yeah, also remember one, uh, I think it's in the same book, uh, since we're talking about the Taj Mahal, there's this photo where there's a steam train in the oh, foreground yeah. with two people sitting uh, with turbans and everything, sitting on the front of the train with the Taj Mahal in the background. And to me, that's uh, maybe my favorite image of the Taj Mahal. It's in, there's human mm-hmm. form in there, and it's great mm-hmm. composition and color and so on. And to me... I never thought that was less than set up. It was probably <laughs> obviously set up, but I mean, I don't care. <laughs> it's a, it's a great shot and uh, it just works. Uh, it was created fine. I'm fine with that at least. Unless, well, he were to say, no, that was just uh, uh, serendipitous, as you were saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think the hornets will stay quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, so another uh, another article I was uh, still fishing from from your blog. Uh, I was just realized this this one is pretty old actually, and it's titled "Dear Beginner, You Make Ripples," and it's oh, yeah, uh, it's this from almost seven years ago. Uh, and the article is about how to to behave, giving tips on how to behave when wanting to to photograph a scene again with people in it. And but you need to enter the scene. It's like a crowded market. How to move in there? How to mm-hmm. meld in with the crowd? Can you give us um, a bit more details about it? What's your recommended approach uh, in these kind of situations? 
yeah, I think, I mean, it's a little bit like we were just talking about uh, a second ago about you, you just can't go in and um, and photograph and then leave. You know, um, if I have I review portfolios every once in a while and inevitably I will get someone who who has these pictures. And I look through it and I go, you just snapped that on the fly, didn't you? And they go, well, yeah. And I go the next, yep. and you did that one too. Well, yeah. And that one and that one and that one. And you can tell it's like, it's like, well, I'm so scared. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to you know, be intrusive and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, okay. So here's, here's what you need to do. You need to slow down. You need to just take a deep breath and need to enter into the scene and then disappear into the scene in a sense. And you do that by, by spending time with your subject or spending time with the, in the environment that you're in. So basically that the, the title comes from an analogy that I made, uh, somewhere down in the, I don't know, where was that? Like I said, it was a, written in 2010, but somewhere in that article, I wrote a, I, I did the analogy of, of uh, throwing a pebble into a pond and you make ripples and those, those ripples eventually dissipate. The pebble's still there, um, but the ripples have stopped. And the idea there is, um, is that when you walk into a scene as a foreigner, as a, 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 a white person, in a, in a, in a, if you are white, but for me as a white person in a oftentimes a, a dark culture, if you will, uh, I stand out and, um, you know, I'm not dressed as a local. I'm, I'm dressed in, in sometimes travel clothes or blue jeans or whatever. Of course, nowadays blue jeans are becoming pretty much ubiquitous, but, um, but, but I stand out. And so, but if I stay in that environment long enough and don't just breeze in and breeze out, people will eventually, frankly, they just get bored of you. Um, and especially if you're not taking pictures constantly, but if you're just there, People will eventually just like they'll get suspicious of you at first. And then if you talk to them and then you buy a little something, if you're in India, you buy some jalebi or some uh, some sort of uh, chips or something and, and then or chai or something. And then eventually they come to just, OK, he's just another strange foreigner and let's just get on with life. And they get on with life. And that's when you can you can take those pictures of life that are unspoiled by you being there. Otherwise, when you, when you walk into a situation, people oftentimes stare at you. They stop what they're doing. Um, it's inevitable that you go to take a picture of someone who's, who's working leather or, or, or measuring some food or something. And when you put the camera up to your eye, they all of a sudden freeze like deer in the headlights. And, you know, it's like, no, just keep, Keep going. That's fine. I just, you know, and they become very camera aware. Sometimes that's fine. Um, you know, if you look at probably the majority of, of, of travel photography, especially for, for, um, newbies, uh, everybody seems to be camera aware because 
because that's what happens. You walk in and they stop and they look at you and they pose. But if you want to get a shot of life happening, you, you really need to enter into the environment and, and slow down and eventually um, you disappear. And, and they, then life goes on and that's when you can get some of the, the better photos. Yeah, great. Again, great, uh, great suggestion. Uh, one, one more thing uh, that I would like to, to get from your, from your blog is another article And this one is called uh, uh, Four Elements That Can Make Your Image Stronger. And you list those elements. They are texture, mood, sense of place, and context. Uh, can you mm. explain briefly what they mean and how can photographers best include them all in an image? And if it's necessary to actually include them all. Yeah, um, that was actually a hard article to write. Um, I, yeah. I, that wasn't taken from, I don't recall that being taken from anything else. Um, but one of the things that, the reason I say it was hard is because I had a hard time, even in my own mind, differentiating between sense of place and context. Those are, those two are so very, very similar. But, but the idea is texture is, it, it can be like physical texture, like patina on a building. Uh, it can be texture of like a, uh, a field of grass. Uh, it can be texture like um, uh, a sky dotted with uh, clouds. It's, it's, it's a visual texture, something that's almost tactile. You can feel it. Um, and, um, and to answer your, your second question, I'll do that first, is no, they all don't need to be in the same picture. Um, I'm just saying that if you have uh, these things, it will up the ante of your photo. And um, any, like if you're taking a, a portrait of someone in India and you have the choice between a concrete wall and a wall that has got uh, layers and layers of paint that's peeling off of it and or dirt all over it or like in Steve McCurry's case, handprints all over it. This gives you um, a, a sense of, of texture and it gives a, um, a measure of depth to the photo. Um, and, and so it just, uh, it, it almost provides like a, a narrative backdrop, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it, it helps set the mood uh, and, and in a sense, um, it helps the, the, the narrative unfold in the photo. Okay. Um, so, and the other one is, was mood. Um, mood has to do with, as it implies emotion or, or feeling with, within the, within the image. Um, uh, you know, so ask yourself in a sense, is this, uh, uh, um, a happy image? Is it a, a sad image? Is it, um, is it, Does it have any any dominant mood within this uh, within this frame, um, and and then? And I think mood, you know, mood is that, not only. I mean, doesn't have to directly come from the the mood of the people. I mean, the no. fact that somebody is sad or happy can just be the the colors, the light, uh, the the time right. of the day that can infer some a particular mood to a photo. I think. 
Exactly. No, exactly. But these things are going to affect the mood of the picture. And so it, it, it will, um, I mean, and you can use that in, in to juxtapose something. So you can have a very foreboding type uh, storm in the background to help create this mood of, of, oh my gosh, you know, it's dark and foreboding. And then all of a sudden have a child laughing in the foreground, that would be a juxtaposition and it would create a, 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 um, a visual interest because of that juxtaposition. However, um, it might also be better than if you, let's say you are taking a picture of a sad a scene like a funeral or something. And if there is a storm, then by all means include the storm in the photo because it will, it will reinforce the mood of that photo. You see what I'm saying? So, mm -hmm. so, um, mood is something that an emotion, these are things that, um, emotion is always one of the, the, the biggest things when photographing people. Um, if you, if you are photographing someone and they have just this stoic face um, and they're not, they don't have, it's sort of a neutral face. They don't have a smile. They don't have a frown. They're not angry. They're not happy. Uh, oftentimes it's, it's difficult to make that visually interesting. But if you can crack that person up, then all of a sudden, bam, you know, that, that's something we relate to. People, viewers relate to emotion and emotion is directly related to mood and um and so uh you know so that's is this is why pictures of people mourning uh crying or or so sad are so powerful because um it, it's just a, such a strong emotion and as human beings again this goes back to the human form thing as human beings we relate to other human forms and, and so when we see that human form sad and weeping, it becomes a very, very strong photo. Um, and so mood is something that is set. Um, it can be by the environment, but it can also be by the, the, the subject itself. Um, going on, a uh, sense of place. That's what I said. This is this one was difficult for me because I need I felt like they were different enough to be separate. But it, it, one of them could have been like a sub point of the other, but I, I guess for a blog, you know, you need four points or something. I don't know. So, um, but but no, you need you of, need you need it needs to be an odd number. Four is yeah, not good. Oh, it needs to okay. be three or five. Sorry, that's so I, should that's have had, I should have an extra point in there. That's that's the rule. Quote. Ah, darn it! <laughs> Didn't know that. Now I do. Okay, uh, a sense of place. Um, for me, this is like I said, it's very similar to context, a sense of place um, helps communicate uh, a location or a sense of place of the, of the location. Um, one of the things that happened to me when I was a, a, a young and beginning photographer was um, I worked at a camera shop and one of the camera salespeople was a, um, a Nat Geo photographer. And he, um, or at least now I look back, I wonder if he really was. But anyway, but he gave me some good advice. He, he was critiquing some of my photos and and I was showing him these pictures I shot in Nepal of these little cute little Asian children. And they were tightly cropped pictures of kids that had just crazy hair on them. They were really cute. It was really nice black and whites that I'd done. And, but the problem was the kids had no shirt on. They had no, nothing in their hair. And they were tightly cropped. And so these could have been little 
Asian kids anywhere in the world. And so as a travel image, it was virtually useless and uh, by itself. Um, it could have been okay to be a part of a series of photos, but as a standalone photo, it communicated no sense of place and there was no context in it at all. Uh, and so, um, and so I realized as he critiqued this, he said, look, there, you know, if you would have pulled out and you would have shown me, uh, a, a, a local Nepali bus or a taxi or something that would have helped conveyed a sense of place, then all of a sudden I realized, oh, this is not New York, this is Nepal or India or someplace like that. And so just in good travel imagery, it helps um, to to help convey the sense of place by, and this is why I also say that, you know, don't get so caught up in wanting to take Steve McCurry portraits, speaking of Steve McCurry, and always shooting with a long lens on, use that wide angle lens and because it includes context, it includes sense of place. Now, if sense of place is literally about a place, context is not necessarily about a place, although it can be, it includes that, but it can also be about time, about religion, about, um, uh, about culture, uh, about a lot of things. And if you can create a sense of context um, you can do this. You can do this without a sense of place, but you can do it. Um, you can do it by, for instance, uh, let's say I take a picture of a Muslim man, and he's reading a Quran, and he's sitting down at a Rahel where the Quran is is kept in, and he's reading the Quran. So he has a prayer topi on top, a prayer cap on top, and he's reading the Quran. And the light's beautiful and everything. So now I have context. I have context that this is a Muslim man. He is uh, probably from his clothing. We can determine he's from South Asia if you're aware of those kind of subtleties. But you definitely know that he's a Muslim because he has a prayer cap and he's reading a Quran. So that gives us context. Now, um, you could say, does it give us a sense of place? Well, probably not. I mean, it doesn't have to be at a mosque. It could be at his home. We don't know whether that's in India, or like I said, we maybe have as South Asia if we can look at his clothing. But if we were to pull out and we see that it was in a mosque, then all of a sudden we have a sense of place as well as context. So, like I said, they're very similar. And and if you wanted to say they were the same thing, I wouldn't argue too much. Um, but that overall, the idea is is that you you need something to help the narrative along. Um, and you need to you need to do this by by pulling out a little wider, including some of the of the, the, the context of the place or the city and and help um, inform the viewer more about what's happening. If you do these things, you'll have a much stronger, especially for travel imagery, a much stronger image. Um, you talk about my blog a lot. Um, you know, the, the one thing. Uh, I, I really, this is sounding egotistical. I mean, I I enjoy writing my blog um, because I think you know I I put a lot of really good stuff in there for people, and um, I, I kick myself because I really should be using this stuff as an ebook, and I don't. I'm I, I, my buddy Pete keeps telling me you should be writing an ebook, and um, I, I'm not very good at monetizing myself, I'm afraid. But um, but there's a there's a term that I coined 
called narrative depth. And uh, I don't know if anybody else that's ever used that term. Um, it's, it's a term that, um, that I used in a blog post uh, called layer your image for narrative depth. And um, I think this goes back to what we were talking about, this idea of, of sense of place or context. But the idea there is when you're taking a picture, if you, if you give it layers, you know, everybody talks about, Oh, you need a foreground a mid ground and a background for a good photo. You do, but, but not just, a foreground, midground, background. If you want that image to really communicate a narrative, if you want that picture to communicate a story, the more information in that narrative that you can put in your background or in your midground or even in your foreground, the more layers of this, the, the more narrative depth you can have, uh, the, the better that photo is going to be and it'll, it'll be a fuller story, if you will. Um, I have a photo that was um, that was used in uh, Asia Geographic, and it's a it's a photo of a guy sitting in a cycle rickshaw, and it's on that blog post. Um, and the uh, to me, it's the epitome of a complete story in one image. Um, I was trying to I, I was tasked with trying to tell the story of of the idea of pull rickshaws being um, essentially phased out of of existence. The only place left in the world is in Calcutta, where they still have uh, a handful of, of pull rickshaws, human, in other words, people pulling the rickshaws versus cycle rickshaws. And, um, and I was tasked with trying to tell the story photographically. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was juxtapose it with a taxi. And so I was walking down the street on Ripon Street, and there's this uh, guy who was sitting there on his his pull rickshaw, he himself was sitting in the rickshaw waiting for a customer. And I sat there and took his picture and I took it with a, with a rickshaw, a, a scooter, rickshaw, um, people call them tuk-tuks. I don't like that because that's in Thailand. These are autos in India. But anyway, uh, so this auto rickshaw was going by and then a taxi came by and then a cycle rickshaw came. And then I, I, I realized that the picture would be if I could get all of them at once or as many as possible. And so I literally, uh, I got out my uh, off-camera flash and I sat there and I waited for probably 30, 40 minutes for the timing of a, of a yellow cab and a cycle rickshaw um, coming through at the very same moment behind this guy. And fortunately, he didn't get up and go to work, you know, so, but, but I think, at the end, I got that photo that had um, had many layers to it that that helped tell the, the complete story in one image, and uh, and frankly, that's it's not easy to do. So we'll put uh, a link to that in the in the blog post as well in the show notes that go together with this episode, so people can read your uh, your own words and, and look at those uh, those images uh, will, uh, um, that illustrate the concepts and so on. But yeah, that, that's um, uh, that, that's been great. Um, you provided a lot of uh, inputs, things for for us to to think about when we when we want to to do photography, to do travel photography, to include people and so on. So I'm very thankful for that. Uh, we're about to to wrap up uh, our conversation. Before we do, I would just like to ask you uh, what's uh, what's in the future for you. Do you have any upcoming uh, travels planned, projects, uh, any workshops you will be leading? Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, I do. I've got a, a workshop 
uh, on the uh, the end of November uh, through the first week of December. Um, it's in, uh, in fact, it's in Kolkata and then in Varanasi. Um, and I run this workshop with my buddy uh, Pete, who's uh, a Dutch photographer, and he has a very difficult name for American like me. Um, Van den Aden, I think is how you say it. Uh, I, I, I try never to say his last name, uh, but Pete's a wonderful dear friend of mine who I totally embarrass every time I say his name. But um, Pete and I run this workshop, uh, and it's uh, specifically about off-camera lighting. And um, it's a master class in lighting and composition. And um, so if people are interested, we have two spots left is all. Um, so it's almost sold out. We keep it as a, a, a ratio of uh, a two to four, two instructors, to, two instructors to four participants. So it's a, it's a really a, a wonderful ratio. Um, and um, so that's coming up. Um, outside of that, I just have... Uh, some assignment work here and there. I've been doing a lot more video than I've ever done before. I'm using the Fuji X-T2 to shoot video, and um, it's uh, it's really I'm so excited about this camera. It's really been doing great. But um, but I'm I am really pushing my uh, my knowledge uh, doing using uh, using the camera. Video, but uh, but it's been it's been fun. Like my, I said, my, my XT2 is only taking stills at the moment. I need to, <laughs> to use it for video more, as I was saying before. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, that's about it for me right now. Okay. Good. Um, and what? Where can people find more about uh, you and your workshops? Well, definitely at the digitaltrekker.com um, and either uh, or mattbrandonphoto.com and. Um, Essentially, those are one's a gallery site and the other one's the blog, uh, but uh, they're both linked together. So if you find one, you'll find the other. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on uh, Facebook. Um, can't stand either one. Yeah, can't stand either one. Frankly, um, I find them to be a huge waste of my time. But um, but it's a necessity these days. Um, I think I'm just an old fart. That's why I. I uh, I sound like that, but um, I uh, I'll have the uh, video blog, uh, so that's uh, that's really fun. And uh, so a lot of the stuff that I'm doing in the the print stuff, I'm kind of uh, either redoing it or doing new stuff on video now. And um, and so you can find me there. You can get all that if you just go to the blog. You'll find all that all the links to everything. So digitaltrekker.com. Okay, very good. Uh, so thanks again for your time today. It's uh, it's been really great. Uh, maybe we'll uh, we'll do another one after one another one of your trips or when you sure update your blog with more useful uh, information and uh, suggestions for for travel photographers. So, All right. Thanks and uh, well, thank you. Cheers and bye. Take care. Well, thank you. Bye bye. All right, that was uh, another great interview with a very knowledgeable photographer. Lots of uh, in-depth information here. Um, I would just like to remind everyone that you can find all the links in the show notes uh, for this episode at ttim.photo forward slash 75 and use uh, the URL ttim.photo forward slash iTunes uh, to leave us a review. That would be very much appreciated. 
one uh, more thing. Before closing, I would just like to remind everyone that I have a few spots left on my tour of the Italian Riviera and Cinque Terre that will be held uh, October 12 to 16, uh, 2017. You can find uh, uh, more information about it at my tours website, uh, mediterraneanphototours.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, all the best and take care.